Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on Scrolling to Death. Today, we're very lucky to be joined by Kath Nibbs. Kath is a psychotherapist, a human behavior technologist, an expert in online harm and cyber psychology. You're an author, you're a PhD candidate, a TEDx speaker, and, and on and on. So thank you for being here today, Kath. Thank you. I'm quickly glossing over that. <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> So we got connected with Kath on LinkedIn recently. I've been um, especially interested in your posts around cyber trauma. Uh And what really caught my eye is the guidance you've been giving parents in response to the really horrific content from the Israel-Hamas war that's all over social media. And we're going to talk about that today. But I'd love to back up first and get our listeners a little better acquainted with your thoughts around cyber trauma. Uh As a society, our children are on screens from the time they are little babies, and screens are a normal part of of their interactions. Can you start off with giving us insight into how children's development and attachments are changing with the constant presence of devices? Oh, well, first of all, I would point people to the uh, TEDx in terms of it summarized very nicely on uh, uh, TEDx. Yes, we loved that video. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's no academic, in air quotes, proof Mm-hmm. that things have changed so what i've been what i've really been writing about is that we have a theory called attachment theory which i'm sure um you you know yourselves but um listeners may not and attachment theory is how we form the bond to our primary caregiver and how we then kind of um use that knowledge to create relationships in the world And I'm suggesting, because part of my um, training as a child psychotherapist was I had to go out and do uh, baby observations. So Mm -hmm. for two Mm -hmm. years, I sat and watched the development of a tiny little boy. And around about seven or eight months of age, he would take mum's phone from her. And he was trying to unlock the phone because she had one of those um, pattern unlocks, not not like it is now facial recognition. Mm -hmm. And I was... Uh, I am a parent myself and I was watching watching this little boy and I was thinking where's the literature for what's happening right now where where can I go that shows me what's happening in terms of the way that this child feels about technology because his siblings were connected to their devices um, in different parts of the house and it was yep. it was a very interesting time because as part of the observations, I wasn't allowed to speak to the family, which made me quite uh, an interesting <sighs> addition to their furniture. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was thinking, wow, I've I've educated my children in using computers. My background was in um, engineering and computing, so mm-hmm. my children were using computers when they were about four, five years of age, mm-hmm. and. I hadn't realised how this handheld device or these tablets as they were coming out then, how they could interfere with or change the dynamics of the relationship. And what I was watching with this mum is she would often photograph the little boy and then turn it round to show him this other little baby. Mm -hmm. And I was watching the confusion on his face and thinking, this can't be the only family that this is happening to or happening with or happening for. And what happens when there's more than one adult using a phone and there's no conversation going on and this child is doing all of those normative things like picking their foot up and saying, mom, mom, look, look, look at what I'm doing. And it being missed and those interactions now being what I call the three parent family, which is technically mom, dad and the thing. And the thing seems to change how parents are interacting with children. So Mm. it might be that they change their tone of voice and suddenly the only time the child is, in air quotes, important is when this darn thing gets presented with, you know, smile, hi. And then what I've been watching is the slow incremental changes of this. And at times it has broken my heart to think, what are these babies learning? And in the first book that I wrote, I actually called one of the chapters E-attachment rather than attachment. Mm. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. suggesting that attachment theory needs an update. I'm suggesting yeah. that attachment patterns have changed. And one of the lines I use in the TEDx talk is if we don't get our needs met out here, we will go looking for them in there. And that's Correct. essentially what I'm watching in terms of the, the pickles and the mistakes that are currently happening. And 
this hasn't just been the last sort of like five, 10 years. Cause I was, I was doing my baby obs in 2011. So mm-hmm. my children are as old as the internet and this has been going on for a lot, lot longer than we actually realized. So there's a cohort of adults who mm-hmm. are 27 and under who mm-hmm. normal uh, behaviors within a household and technology have been adapted, changed, skewed. I wonder, parents that are listening, what we need to be doing here, like what we need to be doing differently based off of these observations that you shared. Yeah. So it's it's not a blaming um, environment. Of right. course, mm-hmm. I mean, as I, as I talk in the book, one of the things that is so difficult for new parents is the overwhelming n- amounts of advice there are for baby rearing. Yeah. I cannot begin to imagine what it's like to be a mom with 300 friends who are giving you advice from the point you notify everybody that you're pregnant. Usually that's with a a baby scan all Mm -hmm. the way through to, well, if dad's got a phone and he's getting advice from his friends and the health visitors getting all of the advice from their friends and then the school get their advice from their friends. There's just an overwhelming amount of information that's contradictory that parents of today don't know what to do so a lot of the time they're also in the same framework and most most parents who are having children now are in that 27 year cohort and under so they are already technology babies themselves yeah and this has been their pattern growing up and we we adults like us old fogies over here are are saying things like well we built the playground and now we're angry children are getting hurt in the playground that we created. Hmm. But you make a point in your book that the playground was not created, the internet was not created no. with children in mind. Right. No. No. And that's right. that's become apparent in terms of so when when it was um created, uh, I mean when you look at the intranet that was officially the one that became the internet, it was about mm-hmm. sharing academic information. Um, and one of the one of the thing one of the tales I often tell is when and this was at CERN I believe one of the very first things they sent to each other was a picture of a topless woman. So you know the internet began with the same framing that it currently has, mm-hmm. but also this is what people do they build they build spaces and then don't think about well what will happen if young people come into this space. Right. What mm-hmm. what people didn't do was consider the harms that would happen to children. And this over, I'm going to say the last six, seven years has prompted a lot of the changes in the law, the legislation around data, privacy rights. Now mm-hmm. we're beginning to have on. Uh, so within the UK, we've got the online safety bill that's, that's um, right. just about to be ratified and, and given royal assent. And that will set the scene for how we now put in those safeguards and it's a little bit like that that phrase around um shutting the gate after the horses have run away right right in your book i loved how uh you said we let the ever increasingly intelligent beasts loose and we are now attempting to tame it by creating more technology to fight with it mm-hmm. and te- there, there will never be a technological solution for a human problem right I, it's it's I mean, I know that this is what we're doing. We're going, well, why don't we build something that, uh, for example, the the one that's at the moment is age assurance. Well, why don't we make it a credit card? And I'm like, well, if you know anything about the ingenuity of young people, you know that they're going to either steal a card, borrow a card, create a card. Um, They Mm -hmm. will find a way to do this. Right. Yes. Let me ask you, if you were to have a child today in today's world, what would your relationship with your device look like around your child, your new baby? So I'll give you a fess up moment. Um, when uh-huh. when my children were little, this was the day that it really hit home in my my house. So I was sitting uh, and I was on my little, little tablet and I was doing my emails as you do in an evening thinking, look at me working hard, aren't I a good parent? You know, <laughs> And one of the children was watching uh, television and, and used, well, he was actually playing on the console, but um, in between that was flicking between... Um, a a program that was live and Mm -hmm. my other son was on the computer so I'm not saying Mm. I had all the money in the world for technology because that's another another discussion about how cheap (laughs) technology has become but I noticed that none of us had spoken for about an hour maybe even an Mm. hour and a half and Mm. I I lifted my head up and went okay this needs to change 
yeah. devices down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one of the reasons I did my TED talk is because, as a parent now, never mind about if I had a tiny baby, mm-hmm. I have been on the telephone to my children. They have been in the middle of talking to me, and it was my eldest child who said to me, "Huh, what did I just say?" Because what was I doing? I was reading and scrolling through a platform. Mm-hmm. because he'd sent me a piece of information and now my attention had been diverted and he could feel that even yeah. in a phone call so wow. it was his moment of um berating me is the word that I use it, his moment yeah. of berating me that made me kind of mm-hmm. think even I'm not averse to this oh yeah we, we have been manipulated as a as a species by big technology in order for us to use their platform, for us to be their customers. And I know people talk about this attention economy. Well, it's not just attention economy. It's a curiosity economy. It's an attachment economy. It's a um, I need to belong economy. It's Mm -hmm. there's more to it than just attention. But that's the thing that often sells in terms of, um, you know, social media being again, chastised by um, documentaries that get made or organizations is well if we can make it about attention then what we can do is we can change attention of people in the world and I'm like but you've got to think about biological needs first because actually Mm -hmm. that's the reason we spend so much time on these platforms because we feel out of sorts and like we don't belong right and we need to get our needs met absolutely how do parents explain to their preteens or teenagers that are just now wanting social media because all their friends have it at school, that social media is a place where it collects information, knows your habits and likes, and creates a perfect space for the future customer, them. I would cut that clip that you just said. How do we say it about yeah. they take our data? They do, I would say exactly that. Because... Mm. And, and the re- I, I do this with um, children in therapy and I say, you know, when when has anybody had a conversation with you about these spaces and organisations? Because um, I, I generally refer to the porn industry when I'm talking in this way. But mm-hmm. these services are looking for the customers of tomorrow. Now, they can only make you a customer of tomorrow if they can exploit a need today. Mm-hmm. And they're not interested in the mental health of children and young people they're not interested in the harms that children can be exposed to they're not interested in whilst whilst they might say so on on the tin so to speak but they're not really Mm. interested because those are the exploitative aspects of a human being now if I can make you feel like you don't belong and this is where those acronyms like fear of missing out come in Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. I can create that feeling in you then we can exploit it for you to want to come back just to check that you do belong well, now uh, you're the customer. So a lot of the time I'm talking to the children and I say, okay, well, let's let's think about the real world, the, the, well, the corporeal, as I call it. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. there's a group of children in a corner of a playground and they're all whispering, what is it like, what, what is a child likely to do? They're likely to navigate and either, you know, hover about, interrupt. Right. They right. might even create um, a space where they upset the, the group by, mm-hmm. you know, going in and pinching somebody up. They, they will do whatever they can in order to be part of that group. It's right. very mm-hmm. rarely that a child will go, well, it's probably not about me. That's fine. And walk away. No, because they're egocentric. <laughs> They they think Absolutely. about oh it must be about me right mm-hmm. <laughs> even adults do yeah, that yeah. well main, mainly it's the well yeah we are we are really saying it's mainly the adults that do that especially <laughs> especially in I mean what do they call them water cooler chats if you mm-hmm. see people gathered together because we have that fear of being extradited yeah. and this goes all the way back to uh, cave people times mm-hmm. it is in our DNA not to be excluded and rejected from the group. Yeah, or you don't survive. Absolutely. So this is exactly... So whilst some of the documentaries and some of the organisations are actually looking at at the moment, oh, well, it's attention, it's attention, it's attention. No, it's not. This is the primary need of a human being. Right. To belong, to be in, Mm -hmm, to to have um, uh, a word that I really enjoy is uh, communitas in terms of we need to be part of a community and we need to Mm -hmm. feel exhilarated by that community Mm -hmm. because that fulfils this need which makes us biologically primed 
to want to be in those spaces. And and I often say the clue is in the title. It's called social media because it's about socializing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so te- what you're saying too, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying that techs are using that need, that sense of belonging to hook them um, yeah. and exploit them and to and, and make them a future customer for tomorrow, that they're always coming back. Yeah. And, and this is the thing with, uh, so I find um, the, the name of your podcast is interesting because it's almost, almost doom scrolling, isn't it? In yeah. Terms yeah. Of the, so we, we come up with these, for, I mean, this is another thing, the, the space of language at the moment about the digital environment is so interesting. But we have this idea of doom scrolling and you could see it through the lens of attention in terms of somebody is just literally flicking mm-hmm. through their feed and they're getting, you know, the, there's a never ending scroll. But actually, what is it that a person is doing that for? And when you ask, uh, I generally ask modus operandi questions like, why are you doing that? Well, because I'm mm-hmm. bored. Okay. And what mm-hmm. are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for connection. I'm looking to see if there's somebody or something I can interact with, even if it's a bot. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, and kids at 13 or even younger, they can't even tell the difference between. I'm not entirely sure adults can at the moment because AI is getting getting good. And I was recently, recently listening to another interview with um, Sam Altman in terms of chat GPT. We're on version four. By the time we get to version six, eight, 10, it's going to be very difficult to actually discern whether we are talking to um, a bot, even uh, you know, even in text. Never mind about when they create wow. the AI-driven facial um, conversations that will happen. I work with teenagers, and so I get this other aspect where we're, we're just getting a lot of like teenagers feeling ghosted with their mm-hmm. friends on technology, or you know, there's a conflict that happens between teenagers and they block each other, stop each other's location, and it's just this new way of communicating, resolving conflict. Right? How as parents can we teach or even guide our kids about helping them come up with a different perspective than thinking, oh, they just got ghosted. My friends don't like me anymore. Uh I talk about um, uh, uh, postcards or pen pal letters years and years ago. Mm. I mean, that's that really is showing my age. But, uh, and in those, I'm going to use a bit of transactional analysis language here. In those transactions, you didn't know whether the other person had received the letter until you received one back. And now, now we're in a place of, uh, so I'm going to call that the not knowing until you know, right? Mm -hmm. We now live in a world where we know and we think we know because we can see, therefore we make assumptions about what we know. And this is where I would sit with a child and say, okay, so um, let's think about a particular interaction and why somebody might not have phoned you back. So I have a contract with my um, child and adolescent clients Okay, you sit in my room, you spend 50 minutes with me, you know, in that 50 minutes, I'm not going to go into my other room and pick the phone up and talk to other people. So what you what you understand by this is that in my room, you are the most important person in that time. Doesn't mean that I'm going to forget the phone. So one of the metaphors that I would use for a child is I, I have gingerbread shapes in my head for each child that I see during the week. Mm-hmm. And I think <laughs> about the children, even when they're not in my physical room. I think about them when they've told me something, maybe about sports cars, if I see a sports car, and I do what's called holding them in mind. Yeah. Really, the age of about 12 to 13, children can extrapolate and think in this way. Mm-hmm. If, then, because, and they're kind of doing logic gate, uh, Boolean thinking, what I would sit and say to them is, okay, let's come up with seven different reasons as to why that person hasn't texted back instantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe mm-hmm. their grandma called round. Uh, maybe their dad said it was tea time. Maybe they, and not like this is ever going to be a, a truth, <laughs> maybe they left their phone <laughs> and went out to play, you know. Right. <laughs> but it could have Hopefully. happened. So yeah. what, what we start to do is go, actually, all of these reasons are not about me. They're about right. the other person being busy or X, Y, Zing. And sometimes that's what children are missing in in early life in terms of schools, but in terms of their way of thinking. And and in psychology, it's called theory of mind or Mm -hmm. mentalization or empathy. And 
sitting with children and asking them to think about the other person looking back at themselves really gives them that moment to go oh well it's actually not about me is it however and this is the comma it might be yes so if somebody has ghosted you was it something that you were doing was it something and then we look at the i behavior so we kind of look at they behavior Mm -hmm. then we look at i behavior Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we never know the answer if we can't talk to the other person and get the answer and that yeah. is difficult for right. children to understand. It's difficult for most of my adult clients to understand. Yes. Right. So being able to sit with that, you know, not black or white thinking, that grey, that unknown unknown, that's mm-hmm. the only thing that we can do. And that is a really distressing feeling for young people. Yes. Especially like you said, and and how we're working on with young people to regulate, regulate their emotions mm-hmm. and really and, and tolerate that distress of, of someone not responding or maybe even forgetting to write back, or maybe they don't want to be friends and this is their way of ending the friendship. Yeah. So, um, I mean, just, just to go with attachment theory, a securely attached person is able uh, now I've had a conversation today and somebody said I haven't mm-hmm. checked in with you and I said actually I have what's called earn secure um there's a reason I'm a therapist um <laughs> uh, I've got what's called earn secure so I'm quite comfortable in myself if somebody doesn't text back or email immediately or they forget I've got two options well I've got three one I can make it all about me oh it's I'm terrible they don't want to talk to me right. or I can go actually they'll get in contact when they're ready or the one that we can do is we give ourselves a time limit and we say, and if they haven't responded within a week, 10 days, 28 days, I'll just nudge them. Yeah. Right. A lot of adults, they sit in that gray area and they go back and forth. They must be thinking this and then I'll say this and then, you know, and it's all made up. Like none of that actually is happening. And if you just had the conversation. Yep. Well, I think we need to sometimes start with the adults. I will say that there are there are yeah. adult clients who are like, uh, hi, and then and then some of the adults do what the children do, and I get the three question marks in a text message, and I'm like, this isn't about, oh. you know, this isn't about my, this is about anxiety. This is about yes. not having right. a secure attachment. This is a, so I don't, mm-hmm. I don't get cross with people. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, even, even yesterday, I texted my son at, whatever time it was about nine o'clock in the morning I got a response at half past five Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't panic because even though he carries his phone around in his hand or whatever I'm using a different platform by texting him so I know that I'm coming in on the (laughs) I'm coming in on the outside so to speak yeah and he'll get around to the text messages when he gets around to the text messages because for his age and for some of the teenagers and some of the other groups at the minute there's a particular platform that they all use and I try mm-hmm. not to intrude into that space because that's his space. I'm not saying that I wouldn't, yeah. I don't know, for example, go on Instagram or Snapchat to talk to him. I try not mm-hmm. to intrude. If it's just a, you know, do you want this dropping round? Have you, uh, are we having uh, a meetup at the weekend? Um, mm-hmm. Where are you? Go- what are you working this way? Anything like that. They're just mm-hmm. kind of general mum questions that don't require an immediate answer. And And again, that's because I understand that I will get those answers when I'm due to get the answers. Yeah. And they'll probably be more thoughtful when he's taking the time to take a breath and read it and respond rather than on the go in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But we're busy. We've got things to do and we can't see in. Um, and this is mm-hmm. in the second or third book. It's we We have this ability to see into other people's lives and we make an assumption that we matter as much as whatever they're doing mm. in that moment. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's a detriment to social media is you mm-hmm. can see there, you can see that they're online. You can see that they posted something yeah. with their kids. You had time to do that and not respond to me. What's, am I not your priority? It's going to cause problems. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Okay. Let me switch over to the inappropriate content conversation. So we really focus on that a lot at Scrolling to Death and shining a light on how much inappropriate content is available to kids through their screens, whether that be social media, online gaming, or even like YouTube kids. We did an episode on that recently, and they admittedly have trouble filtering out disturbing videos. So, And obviously, we can't keep our kids off of all media. So we try on this podcast to equip parents with how do we prepare our children to see inappropriate content and 
when they do see something disturbing, how do we react? And it's important that we react a certain way and, mm. and then help parents improve their communication and trust level with the kids so that their kids come to them with inappropriate things. And we understand that kids like shouldn't see inappropriate content over their age level online. But what I'm interested in is why. So can you explain like what happens to kids when they see disturbing or inappropriate content uh-huh. online. So I'll start with a slight caveat that I might talk about things um, that might be provocative or evocative for people. I don't tend sure. to use the T warning or the content because that can actually prime you. Um, mm-hmm. What I will say is where, where you were talking about how do we get our children ready to sit? Well, I work with a lot of um, adults who have to view child sexual abuse material And Mm. I'm often asked, so how do we prepare the officers? How do we prepare the staff? Mm. And I go, you can't. You can't. What you Mm -hmm. can do is understand how trauma occurs, how trauma and stress works in the body, who is likely to be affected and for for what reasons. That's way too complicated to answer here in a a, uh, short podcast. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I would say to people, that's why Mm -hmm. I've been writing the books, um, because... If you're, and I'll give a corporeal version and then we'll talk about the the virtual in terms of why it's so different. So in the corporeal world, so in the real world, if you were walking Mm -hmm. with your child in the town centre and there was a homeless person who decided that right at that point in time he was going to take his pants down and have a wee, you would Mm -hmm. be able to redirect your child's uh, body you would you would do something yeah. instinctively that's quite protective or yeah. you would probably just stand there aghast going what is he doing mm-hmm. what i often say to people is you you get a sensation about how your child is managing from that interaction because what they're doing becomes the thing that you focus on oh quick turn your head and and i've seen parents do this where they will actually get hold physically hold their child's head mm-hmm. and turn them away other children yeah. are yanked as though their their arms going to come out of their socket. Other people are pushed. Other people right. have parents who stand in front of that. We all have mm-hmm. our way of saying no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are watching, I don't know, two people walking towards each other in that town centre, and you can see that they're not looking where they're going, you would get a physical sensation about they're going to they're going to crash into each other. They're going to bump into each other. And again, mm-hmm. it's something you can avert your gaze from because in the real world, you get all of these different types of cues. Now, you even get those cues when there's a crime committed against you. So, for example, if somebody's going to come up behind you and steal your purse, you get a, a biological, it's an electrochemical fee, uh, uh, thing that's right. going on. But we're also uh, mag- uh, electromagnetic. Your body mm-hmm. gets a sensation. Now, very simply that's related to the way your nervous system works and it's a threat detection system Mm -hmm. that threat detection system is tricked and i call it the false zone of security it is tricked by the very distance we are generally sitting from our devices so i'm going to say ladies that you are currently sitting around about the distance you would probably sit in an intimate Uh, space with your partner the -hmm. distance you would Mm -hmm. hold your baby at this is the distance where you allow people into your nervous system space Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and because of that and we generally hold our phones down to the you know the left or the right many women will hold it down to the left for the same reason that they hold babies off to the left Mm -hmm. and when you are gazing downwards your nervous system says ah I'm safe Mm. and you're in that position where you're scrolling so to speak Mm -hmm. there is no way for your nervous system to go oh those two people are going to bump into each other oh that didn't feel very good oh I wasn't you don't get the uh uh-oh moment you don't get the sensation Mm -hmm. of something is coming that I'm prepared for and in the virtual world it can take some time for you to recognize what it is that you're viewing. So when I'm doing training around this, I show people um, certain videos. In cognitive neuroscience, we know that it's about 0.3 seconds for your brain to actually register an image and make a decision about what you need to do about it. Mm -hmm. And it's about half a second later that your cognitive brain at the very top says, oh, that was a picture of well, between the 0.3 seconds to the full second, and I'm just making numbers up slightly here, it would mm-hmm. it would be easy to, to measure this accurately. 
in mm-hmm. that time, your nervous system has already made a decision about what it needs to do. Mm. And that is what we call your stress response. Yeah. Now, fight or flight or freeze. Yeah. And this is this is exactly why people are finding it so difficult. So I have a, a colleague in Australia. She does a lot of preventative education. And in one of her books, she says, when you see something on the screen, this is obviously talking to children, say no, put your hand up, turn your head away. And she was actually sent some imagery of um, child sexual abuse and she couldn't do that. She said, it took me about two seconds, Kath. She said, because my brain was going, what am I looking at? Mm-hmm. Why can't I make yeah. sense of this? Why is this not feeling great? Oh, mm-hmm. oh, it's, oh. And that's when your brain starts to put it together to say, what you're feeling is because what you're viewing is. And you have to, yeah. you know, I don't know, maybe a good idea is to give a metaphor of a film, you're kind of cascading through all of the files of all of the Mm -hmm. possible images this could actually be representative of. And we are not prepared to be seeing this level of violence and sex and uh, racism and stabbings. We're not prepared to be seeing this at this rate because in the Mm -hmm. real world, it is unlikely we would see much of this on a daily basis at this number. When you're seeing violent images on online, it's taking longer for our brain to discriminate what Mm -hmm. to do, how to prepare for ourselves and how to respond to that. Correct? Yeah. So when, when we have a stress response, there's lots and lots and lots of things all happen at once. Your brain has a response, but your body also has a response. Now your body sends that information to your brain in in what's called afferent uh, nerves through this vagus nerve and your body is already making a decision about i need to get out of here i need to run and this this is in the order of flight then fight then freeze and if none of those work we have another one which is flop now Mm. in that last state that's where a lot of people end up with what I call saturation of the, the stress chemicals. This is saturation of cortisol. This is saturation of I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. And this is why we can find ourselves seeing this material at such a rate. And there is a, a piece of research at the moment that's just been done in this country that shows that the, the number of children that are exposed to school fights, um, stabbings, on a daily basis via Snapchat and TikTok mm. is right. phenomenal. Mm. And we can't wow. measure accurately what these children are exposed to because the big tech companies won't allow us to. Right. Wow. In your experience and, and your practice, are there specific danger areas that you're seeing that we can let parents know they need to be especially careful about? Is it the violent games or the YouTube or snapchat or what should we be most worried about um all of them there isn't there isn't any such thing as a safe platform um and the reason Mm -hmm. i say that is because one child might be exposed to the audio of um and this this used to happen to my children before headsets became uh, as uh um uh, ubiquitous as they are now Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. they were playing some of the games uh when they were younger They were campaign games. They were ones that you shared. And people would scream at them obscenities. And Mm -hmm. and I'm a bit of a sweary person, so it's not like they hadn't heard the the words before. Right, right, right. Actually, these words were being screamed at them by Mm -hmm. adults. And and, and I used Mm -hmm. to say, get off the thing. You know, why? I'm going on in the background about the people online. And my children, oh, shut up, mom. It doesn't bother us. It doesn't bother us. Well, Mm -hmm. actually, that's a bit of a fib. Because I didn't know then what I know now. And what I do see is that the normative space for these children at the minute is they expect to see violence, to see sex, to be shouted at and to be contacted by somebody they don't know. That's their normal. Wow. And how does that affect them long term in their success as a human? Nobody knows just yet because, you know, we've we've, uh, unleashed the devil, so to speak, and we're saying, oh, maybe we should have done some research on this or maybe we should. We're not very good at doing this, are we? And right now we've already done this with VR and we've done it with AI. We've we've let let the devil loose and said, well, we'll get to the problems and we'll sort them out as we go along. Right. Right. Wow. 
the the advice I would give to parents is you have one heck of a job. You have got to be able to manage 20 different platforms, 20 different yeah. sets of uh, parental controls, 20 different sets of ways that children can and will circumnavigate them. And also, and this is something that came from my, my children, and it's why I keep saying parental controls are only useful in your own home. Because right. the moment your children leave your house and go to somebody else's, so this is a conversation for parents to really think about. Mm-hmm. If Timmy is going round to Billy's, at what point does Timmy's mum go and speak to Billy's mum and say, what are your rules around technology? Do you mind mm-hmm. when Billy comes to ours, if we put them on the um, the landing, the kitchen table, um, what kind of platforms do you allow Billy on? And are you okay if Billy doesn't go on those platforms while he's around at my house because I don't let Timmy on them? And again, now you're into a very, very different space of conversations because years and years and years ago, Timmy's mum would have gone round to Billy's to see what kind of house they had, what kind of conversations they have with each other, what kind of values they had. And you get a sense for your neighbour. And now we don't know. Right. Not not so much we wouldn't know the person in the real world, but we don't know what we allow their children to do. Right. And you'd be surprised how much these parents are letting their kids access. I wow. was having this conversation in my head this morning as I was putting dishes away. I was thinking, if I let my eight-year-old go over to this girl's house, how do I ask that parent, what are you letting your child have access to? And can I enforce our rules? Are you okay with enforcing our rules at that house? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of overstepping almost. You know, it's their household. It is. And, you know, every time every time I do the training for practitioners, I know those practitioners are parents. So this is the question I lay down. And I say, and as a practitioner, what would you advise the parents? And the, mm-hmm. the answer to this is none of us know just yet. We don't know what's a social norm. We don't know how to ask these questions. And what, what we've actually done in this country at the minute is we've now decided uh, this isn't going to work. So I am laughing because we've decided that the that, um, one of the politicians is like, ban, ban phones in schools. There we are. Solve the problem. No, it's not going to work. So on the way to school, are they allowed to carry them on the way? Because I'm thinking like a child and I'm like, well, if I'm not allowed yeah. it in the school, can I carry it on the way to school? Yeah, of course I can. <sighs> right. What if it's off in my backpack? Absolutely. Right. <laughs> What if I have a watch <laughs> that calls? Well, <laughs> right. this is exactly the point, isn't it? Is what are we going to classify as this kind of technology? And, right. you know, even right now, some of the schools are not even aware about hotspotting. They're not aware of how to block certain devices, mm-hmm. for example, on uh, an iMac versus uh, a Windows operating system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so let's jump into a bit about the the war here. So first, I have to take a moment to honor the several thousand people who have already lost their lives and the countless families who are living in constant fear. Our hearts are with you. We are thinking of all of you. The news has been horrifying for adults Mm -hmm. to watch and, and try to process. And with the prevalence of social media, these disturbing videos and images are getting in front of our children. As a specialist in cyber trauma, we'd love to ask your advice on how to help parents approach this whole thing. So what do we do if we find our children watching war content online? So there is one one drive in a human being, and it's called curiosity. Mm-hmm. And again, this is one of those exploitative mechanisms uh, within technology, certainly on social media. Now, what is happening is we now live in a world where we have to, in air quotes, prove, prove everything. And, and you know, the young people will say, if it wasn't on social media, it didn't exist. Because in a young person's world, if you say, for example, and we, we've probably all been through that, don't touch that, it's hot. The child right. will touch it because it's like, well, mm, yeah, maybe you could, you could be just telling me a bit of a fib. Right. So I need to get validation of my world. And this is why when children are little, we allow them to climb and bump themselves and, you know, um, be in the playgrounds and to navigate and to have learning moments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we often call those consequences and children learn through behavior. 
Mm-hmm. What social media is actually doing at the moment is saying these terrible things are happening and these terrible things are. And we have imagination. We can fill in the gaps with imagination. Those of us that are slightly older and have already seen images like this. So for me, I've seen lots of documentaries about um, many of the wars that have existed. And mm-hmm. particularly in the US, there is a huge piece of media that we are all familiar with uh, from 9-11. Mm-hmm. And what we know uh, in terms of Bessel van der Kolk shared this um, is the people most traumatised by that media were the homeless people who lived near shops that sold televisions because they mm-hmm. were being continuously exposed to the scenes and continuously mm-hmm. watching what was what was occurring. And children process things in a different way where they watch something and they might not comprehend exactly what it is they're watching However, when it comes to images of people and those people being hurt or those people in pain, those people, um, sadly, the the videos that are circulating and they will get more and more are those that are tortured, executed. Mm -hmm. That can be comprehended even by babies. Babies can recognise emotions and... Whilst children feel slightly detached because they're not looking at somebody that they know, they mm-hmm. are looking at images that are distressing. For me, in, in all the time that I've talked about cyber trauma, it was actually this kind of material that put me into this space of calling it cyber trauma. So I'm not I'm not talking about two children, I don't know, throwing paper at each other. I'm talking about two children having fights, something that years ago used to be called happy slapping. Well, we're we're looking at war material. This is absolute atrocities of human harm, one person to another. We call this interpersonal conflict. Mm -hmm. And again, research shows children who live in houses where there's a, a domestic abuse and interpersonal conflict, they can and often do suffer with post traumatic stress. Yes. So as parents, um, this is why uh, in the middle of the workday last week, I just thought, OK, there's a threat that certain images are going to be shared. It's already yep. terrible. So yep. I kind of just clicked record and said, watch out for nervous systems. And again, yeah, it was only two minutes because <laughs> the attention economy, she says in air quotes. <laughs> but actually what I wanted to do was just put something out to say, I don't know what a child's reaction is going to be. What I do know is that nervous systems react in one of two ways. They either become hyper-aroused or they become hypo-aroused. And that's the stress response, fight, flight, freeze, and the opposite one, which is flop. And in all of the time that I've been a, a child therapist, what I tend to get are presentations of he won't go to sleep. He's Uh, you know, up and down to the toilet all night, or she's in the bed with me, or she keeps crying, or, and and this is what parents say, and I say, okay, that there's the response, that's what we need to look for, that change in behaviour, that change in uh, wanting to know stuff, and children ask why, 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 right, we're built to ask those questions, sadly, we tend to shut them down very quickly, because I said so, right, Mm -hmm. you know, and That leaves children who have been in a world where they've been told they can't ask why questions to not then ask why questions. And we need to explain what's going on to them in a way that they can manage. So they can process that. So they don't hold on to that stress response. They're able to process it and work through it. And it's, it's a very difficult concept and most of us don't get exposed to this until we're much older in terms of um, trauma but the world can be terrible and people can do really terrible things to each other and those terrible things are now becoming a reality for young people and you know I'm just thinking about in the 1980s I was exposed to videos on tv of don't climb up electric pylons um, don't cross the road without looking both ways Um, Mm. And then in the uh, late 80s, it was uh, all the adverts around AIDS. And then it, it's a don't, 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 don't world. And most of us were like, well, I, I'm never going to climb up a pylon. I'm not going to jump in a cold river. I'm not going to do. But actually, we know children do. And mm-hmm. children will go looking for this. I mean, if we say don't go looking for the content, they will. 
And we're in a space where actually we haven't got consent at the minute because the news outlets, the mainstream media, um, certainly a newspaper in this country, uh, they decided that it would be suitable to share this image. Um, and it was an image of, of one of the babies. And uh, it, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible yeah. that we've decided that we know what's best for people to be able to view. And then I'm going right. to go, and yet we need to have these discussions about what's happening. Yeah. Right. There, there could be a line, right, on what you're comfortable viewing. Yeah. If, if we don't have these conversations, we're left to our own thoughts and processes and akin to the conversation earlier, we make it all about us. Right. In my household, we have three kids under eight. And so this war is not something we're going to be introducing to them at this time. It's not something they're going to get access to without us. They don't have any internet access except for their iPads at school that have uh, Safari internet, which is restricted, but they can still get on YouTube. It's a separate issue. But for kids that are a bit older that are going to get access to this, would you recommend age appropriately introducing the concept and preparing them for what they may see? I think, yeah, I think it's incredibly important for us not to shy away from this nowadays because it is so easy for somebody to send you a message with a link and children, mm -hmm. they don't have the critical thinking under the age of about 12 or 13, so I'll just make that definition. They don't mm -hmm. have the critical thinking skills to go, is this something that I don't want to watch? If they are on social media, they might not have um, autoplay turned off they might be exposed to it right. by friends on the bus on the way to school going oh my god do you know about and have you seen because right. that's right. what we do about our local neighborhoods you know oh my goodness gossip 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 right. and right. this is this is something that children will be trying to understand and I would certainly say all questions are relevant you know, why is somebody doing that we can answer and this is probably going to shock a few parents we can answer I don't know. Right. We don't have to have all of the answers. And when we say, I don't know, we can also put our own empathic, compassionate ending on it, which is, and that frightens me as a grown-up as well. So I suspect that you might be feeling the same way. And actually, it's okay for us to talk about being frightened. And it's okay for us to um, know that we, we don't understand why this is happening. Sadly, at the minute, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation, but there's also something called malinformation that isn't talked about enough. And that's where the truth is exacerbated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, AI is now scanning some of this information to say, well, actually, this is a made up video. This is a video from 10 years ago. This is a video that isn't even from this conflict. And mm -hmm. that's also very difficult for children to do. I mean, it's difficult for me at times because... I'm just like, am I watching uh, or reading something, should I say? Am I reading something that is true? Or is this a spin that somebody's put on it for those reasons of misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation? And you want to be informed, but it's confusing what you're reading and mm -hmm. what's fact. And, and I, let, me, let me put my spin on it for the parents so that the parents can do this. And I am struggling to understand this stuff. Yeah, I don't know who's telling the truth, what the truth actually is, if there is a truth. And as a grown up, I am struggling with this space of digital uh, technology. I struggle with whether I am reading something that has truth in it or whether it is being told by somebody who is truthful. Does that make sense? So, mm -hmm. again, yes. I have mm -hmm. to take my time with information. And in a world that's, um, you know, spinning it out like those card dealers at the uh, casinos, I, mm -hmm. I can't. I can't keep up with it. So, you know, it's okay to not be 100% certain about what's happening. I had a question about my kids and I love to watch movies together and I'll let them watch things like Lord of the Rings or even like we watched Avatar with the older ones. And then, and there's some violent things in Avatar specifically uh -huh. and war scenes. So should we be limiting our children's exposure to this violent content for entertainment and video games and movies and how do we prepare them to understand the difference between real life violence and entertainment violence well i mean this is this is a good example tom and jerry okay tom mm -hmm. and jerry is incredibly violent right yeah now um so one of the things i did with my children is again uh, you have to guess as a parent about are they ready to watch 
Um, and there were limitations on, no, you can't watch that yet. There's a reason there's a 12, 16, 18 rating as they yeah. are in this country. So I think you've got mm-hmm. um, you know, different rating systems in, in the US. But there is something about you make an educated guess about whether your child is capable of uh, watching something. But also we tend to watch with them. So we can detect, you know, if they're struggling right. or if they're hiding behind the pillow or the settee or it, it behind mm-hmm. their hands. But actually, there is something positive about being exposed to something that you didn't know if you could tolerate it. But somebody was there to help you tolerate it. We call this co-regulation right. that allows you to then self-regulate. So for many of us in, in kind of my childhood era, it was Doctor Who with the Daleks. And some children were absolutely terrified of Doctor Who's Daleks and other people weren't. And one of the things I did with my children is talked about, so aliens are not real. If we watch something with aliens in, and and we know that this is a cartoon, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and, 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 and. Well, I now know that children process cartoon images. I'd say under the age of about eight, they can process cartoon images in exactly the same way we process real life type images Mm. because children cannot discern that capability comes through a stage where they start to learn about fantasy and reality and this is why for some children they might be watching I don't know Scooby-Doo Tom and Jerry and something in that movie so um, one of my children didn't like the ending of Who Framed Roger Rabbit because it was kind mm-hmm. of cartoon, um, and, and mm, right. uh, it, it was it was when um, Christopher Lloyd's eyes popped out, because yeah. that was the cartoon aspect of it on a real life figure. So we yeah, had conversations confusing. about nobody's eyes can really do that, um, and what we won't do is we won't find programs like that that are scary, and we'll have conversations about that. But one of the things we have all done no doubt, is all watched that horror movie that we shouldn't have watched when we were somewhere in the region of between 9 and 14, and it's the one that stays in our head. Mine was Jaws. Blair Witch Project. (laughs) Jaws is, as I repeatedly say, the worst horror movie ever invented. Yes. I was so scared of sharks. I'm still to this day scared of sharks. I will not go in the ocean and go swimming and snorkeling in the ocean. No, thank you. No, mm-hmm. I'm good. My dad said he will take me to go see Jurassic Park if I can get through Jaws. And so we watched Jaws first, and then he took me to the theater to see Jurassic Park. No. <laughs> Jaws was so scary for me. I literally, I remember I had a twin twin bed, and I had um, dark carpet. And I remember as a kid, like, being in the middle of my bed, like a pencil, because I I, were, I just had these thoughts that a shark was going to come up and, and get me. <sighs> So that example is really, really good of something that is completely impossible being possible in the mind of a child. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things is whilst we're saying, well, you know, children, uh, they're not really seeing much of it or it was a um, the only way to describe it is it was a still image of a child that had been killed. And often we say, well, you know, it's, it's, there wasn't anything in it. It was a photograph. Actually, that child can insert any kind of imagination in, right. like like you talked about there. In, it, there's no such thing as sharks in bedroom carpets at all, ever, that I am aware of. But it didn't stop you, actually, as that young child thinking, well, actually, that could be a possibility because maybe my parents did lie. Yeah, <laughs> totally. 100%. And yeah, I suspect so. I mean, I've had this experience myself where I was um, in the sea and I'd got uh, bikini bottoms on that had got tied both. I didn't Uh know that you had to tie them yourself. So when one came undone and kind of just caught my leg, I'll tell you what, I have never swam so fast in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Because instantly your tech, now this is the thing about cyber trauma. So I do use JAWS as a as a way to actually explain to people about mirror neurons. So I've, I've not gone into all of the science today. But there is this thing about your brain is an associative machine. Mm-hmm. And something touched my leg. I was in the water. And the first thing my brain did is went, Jaws. And I was gone. Yeah. yeah. To, the, to the point that afterwards I was like, mm-hmm. how ridiculous am I? for even connecting those two. Well, I mean, it could be real. It could be, even though I've seen the programs and the making of, and, you know, this is a shark with cognitive abilities that wants revenge, and it's all rubbish, but not in that moment. How brilliant the brain is to do that association and protect you. People do this all the time when they're laid in bed and they get a tiny itch, and the first thing they think is either ants 
Oh, Giant I, spider. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spiders. <laughs> arachnophobia <laughs> yeah, like right spiders. that movie <laughs> one thing that we really talk about a lot on this podcast is the topic of sharenting the prevalence of sharing your kids online and and some of the risks safety issues digital identities things like that that are coming off of that so we both really loved your book we loved the tone there's some humor in there mm-hmm. we loved that you were straight to the point there wasn't a lot of I don't have a better term for this, like pussyfooting around. Mm -hmm. Like when people talk about social media, they have a whole chapter on all the benefits to start and then they get into some of the negatives and consequences and things that parents should be aware of. And it just, it didn't do that for me. And I really appreciated that. You share right in the beginning, uh, Sharing our unborn babies online can be an ethical dilemma for some of us and may need much more thought about when, how, why we share pictures in this way. And you also say, you ask, is anywhere in an infant's development sacred anymore? Mm. That really hit for me. We challenge parents on this podcast to ask themselves and think critically, like, why are you sharing images of your child? Why do people share their children besides the topic of pride? And why don't people think more critically about this topic? Mm-mm. Well, I mean, pride is the driving emotion in yeah. 99% of these cases. Um, and the why shouldn't I? Um, it also makes it look like I'm a, a, a I'm just going to go through the list, A, fantastic mum, uh, B, look at the, my garden and how much space my children, it could be any of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I think, uh, and again, those images of children in scans, um, the reason I put that is my father's a radiographer. And I know mm. that radiographers can look at those images and they can detect issues with unborn babies that's their ju- that's what they're uh, you know right. sonographers and so on that's what they're mm-hmm. educated to do and again for me there's something about so what would you do in that situation would you go and tell that family would you say hey I've just noticed that perhaps there's this uh, issue what happens um, if those images are taken now the images of um, unborn babies are pretty much scans what worries me mainly because I talk to and work um, with lots of professionals in and around the world of child sexual abuse material, and this is going to sound frightening to a lot of parents, is any of those images of children can be captured by any one of your social media friends because we don't always know who is who. And I'm not just talking here about, well, that's my uncle, that's my friend. The world of child sexual abuse material is increasing rapidly at a rate that would it is terrifying. It is terrifying, and I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, I do have a book about that. There is also, uh, an, I don't know what we call this now, an epidemic of um, images of children being taken, manipulated, and put onto um, bodies of other children or bodies of AI children, excuse me, in order for the perpetrators of crimes against children to create material that satisfies their needs. Um, That is the biggest reason for not sharing pictures of your children. Um, And that would be the primary reason. And if you really, really want to show people pictures of your children growing up, put them in a photograph album and show them to your family and friends. Social media is not a space for images of children to be shared for the reasons that I've given. And AI and facial recognition data has been scanning those images for a long time. There is a lot of information collected about your child who isn't even an adult yet. Yeah. And they are scary things for me to say, but those are really big important reasons and I know some people will be screw you Kath I'll do what I'm going to do and you know nobody's going to get pictures of my children because I've got a lockdown Facebook account Mm -hmm. and and it's not about anybody being a bad parent it's about we cannot trust people in this world not to want to harm children right and that is so unfortunate but so true Mm -hmm. and we we did a full episode on on sharenting and um we did highlight a lot of that research that you mentioned. We shared specific stories of people here in the U.S. that have had their children's photos taken by people that they know from their private Facebook account or private Instagram and placed on these websites. And one point Ashley made recently was that we as parents don't get any notification that these photos are being stolen. There's children up on these sites that the parents have no idea. Yeah, 
And many of us, many of us in the real world, would be appalled if somebody was taking a picture of our child in a public park. The first thing right? we would say is, "What are you doing? Why, why are you taking?" But right. we Who are you? Yeah, we haven't put that thinking to the social media space because. So the metaphor, that, and and it is the best metaphor I've got. I know um, Elon Musk talks about the town hall. I talk about the city park. Many people know what a city park is like. And there are areas of this social media city park where people are taking drugs and people are taking pictures of children, but people are also hurting children and people have sinister things that make them happy. I'm keeping this as as clean as I can. And if you knew those people existed in that park, you would never allow your children into that park or you would hold their hand all the way through it until... They were 14, 15, 16, 17, and had the skills to navigate the city park. I think parents will really connect with that. I appreciate you sharing on that subject. It's very important. To, to be honest, Nikki, it's the most difficult topic at the moment. Now, my, my research tends to be around um, the graphic violent images, but the child sexual abuse imagery, I was recently um, down at a keynote in a conference and some of the figures uh, actually made me cry. Not, I'm, I'm not going to deny what, it, and I, I have had that response in terms of the the images at the moment. But I actually went back to the hotel room and I was like, "What is happening? This is this is insurmountable at the moment." And the only way we can change that is by getting parents to protect their children, because if they thought that image of their child was equivalent to a person rocking up to their house and saying, can I just take a picture of your child? You would say, why? What for? You would be on the phone to the local police department. There's a really weird person at my porch. Yeah. And we often do that thing where we say, but I can trust everybody on my Facebook account. Is that the disconnect? They think private is private and that they trust everyone? Yeah, and, and there's a phrase, wherever there are children and wherever there are adults, there will always be people trying to exploit those children. And in, in child sexual abuse imagery, a lot of those images are children um, being abused by parents. Okay. Parents need to know about this so that they can make a critical decision. So it's really important to share, no matter how uncomfortable. Yeah, and and it does it does leave a lot of people going right. That's it. And and doing a cleanse of your social media to remove those pictures of your children is not a bad idea, because that's about protecting your children. And actually, as a parent, that's what you want to do. Yeah, and it's time consuming to do that. I know parents that have reached out to me that spent the time doing it, and it took them days to do it. The social media companies don't make it easy to take no. content down. Nope, not at all. Because kid content on their platforms gets a ton of engagement and they want that content on there because those are their future customers. Yep. It doesn't make the world we're navigating sound very nice, does it? No, no. it's not very nice. No. <laughs> no, it's not nice. We have to be careful and critical in our decisions. Yeah, so I, I will just put in this last sentence. So I, I write about the darker side of um, people and human behaviour and technology, but look at what we're doing. This is one of the positives. I could not survive an entire day without my own phone because I do you know banking on there or emails or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We are now in a world where we can't live without technology, so we have to accept that whilst we have uh, the positives – it's being aware of the negatives. Right. Take our blinders off a little bit, parents. I have small kids, so it's hard for me to think of child abuse, child pornography. I don't want my mind to go there. We do. We need to have these hard conversations and we need to protect our kids. So this is not an attack on you. This is an attack on uh, language. Um, I don't use the phrase child pornography ever child sexual abuse oh. material because there's okay. no consent now i know that in the u.s that mm. is the terminology used in the legal right. system and it needs to change i know across many different places at the moment we are challenging that it's child sexual abuse material and when you hear it said in that way it sounds even less palatable yeah, yeah. absolutely thank you for that Kath, thank you so much for spending this time with us today can you tell our listeners uh, where they can connect with you Okay, so I am on the socials. Um, I have a website, which is childrenandtech.co.uk. So the and is the word, it's not the ampersand. 
And on there, you can get a link to my uh, TED Talk. You can get a link to the books that I've written. There are a large number of blogs that I've been doing since about 2012, certainly on the subject of what what gets shown on social media when it comes to war material and um, why we look. So the the idea of curiosity. I write hard-hitting articles on Medium. I'm not going to say they're less hard-hitting, but um, more informational ones on my blog. And then I've done working with cybersecurity companies, uh, Avast, Internet Matters in this country. And Mm. I write wherever I'm needed. I I pop on and do these kinds of uh, things. But I also have a podcast myself called Cyber Synapse. There is, should I say, four seasons, five years. And then I'm on LinkedIn. Twitter is at Nibsy. And I'm on Instagram as well. But most of the conversations I have about this stuff is uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Ashley and I really recommend, this is your first book, I think, Children, Technology, and Healthy Development, How to Help Kids Be Safe and Thrive Online. We really liked this one. I'm now collecting a bunch of books on these topics and this was our favorite one so far oh well thank you i i did do i did do a book in 2016 you can only get it as a kindle one now called cyber trauma the darker side of the internet so you can get that one on amazon um and the other books at the moment i'm currently finishing off book number five which is due in shortly she says which is why she's doing podcasts instead of writing (laughs) (laughs) i saw you cat do a podcast you should have been working on uh, yeah yeah there is there is that in terms of time limits but um there's there's also another there's another whole set of books to come at the end of the the phd Oh, that's awesome, Kath. Amazing. Thank you again to Kath, and thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. Be sure to click follow wherever you're listening. We also have been picking up steam on Instagram and YouTube, so connect with us there. We're sharing tons of short clips and bonus content on those platforms. We're going to keep bringing parents' conversations that matter on topics you need to know about. We appreciate everyone for being here, and we'll catch you next time. So thank you for listening to Scrolling to Death. Bye. Bye. Bye.